0: What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest is Nicole Maddox. Nicole and I first met when she was our client at Redfin, and I was immediately impressed. Since that time, she has worked at Seattle's high-growth startup, Convoy, as their head of talent acquisition, and most recently, Nicole is taking her 13 years of recruiting experience and consulting companies on all things related to strategy, process, and analytics. I asked Nicole to be on our podcast, What Fuels You?, because she is a real gem to the Seattle community. There's so much to cover on this subject, so I guess let's just dive in. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you. Part of me was really curious to find out even how you got into recruiting, because I've been doing it 25 years, and you obviously don't go to college to become a recruiter. (laughs) So how did you start as a recruiter 13 years ago?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So basically, I had moved to Denver after college to help my sister plan her wedding. And um, I mean, honestly, I was like waiting tables at the time, and I was I had a uh, I was looking for my my real quote unquote job yeah uh, as an engineer and someone reached out to me uh, to be a tech recruiter at like a staffing firm in the Denver area and I was like hey this pays better than waiting tables how did they find you uh, well I had my resume up for engineering roles on I think it was Monster or something yeah like, like back like that. in the day like what was it yeah and I think they were they were uh, the guy. Uh, that owned the company was just looking for people who had engineering background to Mm -hmm. actually do the recruiting. And when you say engineering background, you studied what in college? Uh, Computer science and electrical engineering. It was a mashup of the two. So it was, uh, at the time, it was like microprocessors and like the coding, but also robotics. So it was a combination of both computer science and actual like hardware engineering.
0: So how did you choose Purdue? And how did you choose this major, this double major, I guess?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Well, so Purdue... uh, I was looking at engineering schools. Uh, so essentially, how did I cho- choose a major actually comes first. My father, was he's an engineer, and he said, uh, if you go for a technical degree, that's where the money is, and I'll pay for your schooling. Nice. Uh, and if you don't, you're welcome to go do whatever you want, and you can cover it yourself.
0: So you go there, you move, You go into Denver to help your sister plan her wedding, uh-huh. and then a recruiter recruits you to come be a recruiter?
1: Uh, Well, the owner of a recruiting agency recruited me to come be a recruiter. Well, you're definitely good at it.
0: And so then what ultimately
1: brought you to Seattle? Uh, Well, Amazon brought me to Seattle. Did you like Amazon? Um, I, there were things I liked about it, and the things that I didn't. Um, I think ultimately it just really cemented for me that I'm a small company person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like building and growing things. Uh, and there, I ran a program, uh, and I got to do a lot of international travel, which was fun. But, um, most of it was already figured out. There was no building; it was just kind of mm-hmm. processing. Candidates. How does
0: recruiting? How would you compare recruiting for a large company to recruiting for a small company?
1: Um well recruiting for a large company they typically have a, a broader strategy that's already figured out uh for a company the size of Amazon um the challenges are just very different there's so much more internal competition mm-hmm. uh where you're not just competing against Facebook and Google and all the other startups in the world you're also recruit- like competing against every other recruiter at Amazon and so there the tactics are very different. There's uh, for anyone who's been at Amazon, there's the tagging guidelines. And so you tag ownership of a candidate and there's rules for how long you can own that candidate. And then mm-hmm. if you don't follow those rules, another another recruiter can take ownership of that candidate. And so it's it's just a very different I mean, they probably have most of the most of the people in the US in their database already. There's just such a huge recruiting machine. And mm-hmm. so it's really more about taking ownership of candidates that are already there. It's Mm -hmm. not hunting. It's not building programs. Right.
0: There's a lot of incredible uh, people that work at Amazon. But because it's so big and because it's such a monster, they've got it segmented out to different steps along the way versus where I come from, which is the full cycle Mm -hmm. and which is now what you've been doing. And so how do they segment it out at Amazon? And um, what what are the coveted roles within recruiting at Amazon? Mm
1: -hmm. Well, they have a finder filler model. So they have a team that sources candidates and finds them uh, and then kind of in the middle of that it's really the coordinators who own the candidates while they're putting them through the process and then before a candidate goes for the full loop the filler uh, or closer lead recruiter comes in builds a relationship with the candidate so if they do well in the interview loop that person is the one who closes the offer and it negotiates mm-hmm. with them uh, and so the metrics for success are completely different between the two roles um, there are some teams that I do believe have like a more full cycle model, but for the most part, it's filler finder across the, the entire company. So mm-hmm. it's just you don't you you don't have ownership of the candidate. There's a lot of handoffs. Um, mm-hmm. I remember when I went to Amazon when I was negotiating my offer, uh, it was just really weird to me that this recruiter I had only spoken with once ever was the one who was like. Comgratating to, to my offer, you. yeah, yeah,
0: and it's it, at the end of the day, it is such a relationship business that it does feel strange to have that segmented out, yeah, um, and so then, how was your experience at Redfin after that, and how did that come to be?
1: um well, so I think my experience at Redfin uh was drastically different. They were Redfin was an older company in that they'd been around about ten years, but developmentally as stage as a company um it had just taken a long time because of the regulations and the real estate industry for them to grow that big. Um, so it still felt like it was maybe a three or four year old company, even though it was nine years old when I started there. Um, it really, it came about because uh, they reached out and we're just like, we're looking for someone who can take this function of recruiting and, and build a strategic practice around it. Um, and so they hired three of us to, to own different segments of it. So I owned industry, technical hiring we had a colleague who owned more of the um, kind of corporate side of things than a colleague owned university. So the three of us were hired together to kind of build this dream team of, of strategy for Redfin as they decided to scale up quickly. So um, you know it's just really different because they had they had a few things in place. they had an interview process in place. they had some good interviewers in place but it was really coming in and saying, let's take this hiring goal that we have and, and figure out how we're actually going to get there as opposed to just pa- processing candidates, right? Mm-hmm. And so many times companies hire recruiters to process candidates and mm-hmm. they don't think about the strategy involved. Or they don't think about what does success look like in a recruiting function aside from making hires. Because mm-hmm. if that's the What success, types of
0: metrics are we looking at? Yeah. And what experience are the candidates having when they come to interview mm-hmm. here? And mm-hmm. So if I'm the CEO of a seed round company, at what point should I be thinking about um, seeking advice from someone like you or an outside agency or or, or thinking about bringing on an internal recruiter?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think when, you, when you're looking at making more than like a one or two one-off hires, so when you're like, it's time to start building a function, whether it's engineering, whether it's sales or whatever that looks like, when you're looking to start hiring more than just like your you know, first five or six people, it's worth it to start considering a strategy at that point. And, it, you know, your strategy at that point may still be, hey, we're going to own this, but how are we going to segment the candidates we're looking at? Who are the people we want to go find? How are we going to reach out to them? Mm-hmm. Um, You know, like a lot of people just po- post jobs and really the candidates you want aren't typically on career sites. They don't yeah. need a good job. They well, have they're not even job. looking. They're yeah, just they're sitting exactly. at their desk doing
0: their job. And yeah, it's the passive candidates.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, I think like when you start to look at those first few key hires, those are so critical that it's worth it to at least talk with someone who can help kind of throw some ideas, other things you'll want to think about with a strategy. But then when you look at rapidly scaling, and that's really where we were with with Redfin when I joined, and also even to a broader degree with Convoy when mm-hmm. I joined, um, you want to have a strategy in place around how you're going to find those candidates, um, how you're going to process them, like what what process do you follow so you don't run into bottlenecks, and then how are you going to measure success, mm-hmm. um, not just from a qualitative or quantitative perspective, but from a qualitative perspective as well. Right. Um, and so a lot of it's really building feedback loops in as you go along to so that you can kind of see around corners and see, hey, this is... This is feeling crunchy right now. That probably means as we as we push more candidates through this, it's going to get become more of a bottleneck. How do we how do we mm-hmm. fix that? Or, um, you know, we we keep missing this thing on candidates. How do we screen for that earlier? Mm-hmm. Things of that nature.
0: And thinking through comp and thinking through timelines mm-hmm. of feedback loops, um, I obviously is crucial. And I get surprised. You and I have talked about this by how many companies say it's a priority, mm-hmm. you know, and that it's their top challenge. And yet, they don't necessarily put a lot of energy and resources into it off the bat to kind of a establish like how are we coming up with our job descriptions? Mm-hmm. Who's involved in the interview process? Yep. Um, is everyone aligned? Is in everyone what we're hiring aligned for and what yes. that looks like? Yeah, I can't tell you how many times we have people going through loops and they'll interview with four people and they hear four different types of descriptions mm-hmm. about the same job and they leave feeling confused. And so yep. that's okay because a lot of these companies are startups and they're looking for that kind of Swiss Army knife, but it's not necessarily okay if the company looks disorganized and it looks like who's really in charge and what exactly are they looking for and am yeah. I right even for this job?
1: Yeah. I um, mean the the we're a scrappy startup is only cute for so long before candidates kind of wonder if you've got your your shit together. Or yeah. Not.
0: Finding that original team or the, those first few mm-hmm. hires that are so crucial. What are the first few things kind of what they should be thinking about to make sure that they're set up for when they do get potentially funded to, to scale?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, are we talking about with just the first few key hires? Or... Yeah, the first few. Yeah. So you've got
0: like a couple of founders and now they're looking for kind mm-hmm. of a few engineers,
1: maybe head of product. I think the first thing I would say is if it's not a role you've hired for before, leverage people who've hired for it before. Uh, you have investors you have advisors. You have a board. Ask them. You know, if, if you've never hired a CFO and that's what you're going for, what are the gotchas that that you may not see that someone else who's interviewed for it has has learned the hard way? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if you can't afford an agency or you can't like a, a search partner, you can't afford a consultant. Um, you know, just think like leverage the network that you've built. Right, like sit down with. Your investors, your board, your advisors, mm-hmm. and say we're looking for this. Who do you know that we should talk to? Either because they're a good candidate, or because they're well connected, and we should talk to those people and really leverage that network. Right. Um, I've talked on panels about this, about
0: like kind of how to create kind of a, a really an overall recruiting culture where, from mm-hmm. the very beginning, it's not just the onus on the CEO or on the head of recruiting oh, yeah. to recruit, but to teach everybody that at all times, you know, you need to be selling and mm-hmm. talking about what it is that you're trying to build. Yeah. How do companies compete with regard to um, selling their vision, but also selling the idea of the equity?
1: hmm I think one of the first things to do is get them in a future mindset, um, get them out of the, the position of comparing Amazon stock to, you know, your privately held company stock, you know, or pre-IPO stock, because they're not the same thing. And if you're competing on current day value, the startup's going to lose every time, Uh It's really looking at the future and saying, hey, like, this is where we think we're going. This is what we think we can accomplish. Uh, And if we hit this, this is what it could look like. And some people think that looking at stock is such a, like, mystifying, how do you ever know what it could be worth? Um, But it's it's not that mystifying. I mean, you can look at... The market right so if you're let's say you're looking at a fashion company well uh, I think last time I checked it was a 250 billion dollar industry uh, let's say you're looking at a fashion company but specifically focusing on dog fashion maybe that's you know like 10% of the industry so now you have you know a 25 am I doing my math right 20, yeah. 20, yeah yeah so so you can you can break it down and then you can say okay well how many competitors are there in the space Um so realistically, if it's a really saturated space, maybe they'll be lucky to get 1% market share or 1.5% market share. If it's not a really saturated space, maybe they'll get 10% market share, mm-hmm. or 15% market share. So looking at that and understanding kind of the competitive landscape and the potential of just the market on its own, you can say, okay, like barring them just completely closing their doors, if they just do marginally well and get half a percent of market share, this is what you know the stock might be worth. Mm-hmm.
0: And so what are key things that candidates need to be thinking about before accepting an offer?
1: Uh, Well, um, a couple so of things. The size of the market. The size of the market, yeah. Um, so understanding how much, you know, in the U.S., how much money is being spent on that market in a, in a year. Um, and thinking, taking into account, like, the addressable market. So if if the company is focusing on a specific piece of that market. Mm-hmm. Um, how many competitors are there? How well established are those competitors? Um. I think you can typically look at investors and leadership and say, "What is wh- how 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 successful do I believe these people can be in this mm-hmm. vein?" Um, and then you kind of have to look at you know the timing of the company as well and um, what your expectations are. A lot of people, as far as like Series A, Series B, exactly, that or like yeah. first to market, like which part of the timing, both, both, okay. but like um, you know, a lot of people look at the startup and they're like, "I want to be a millionaire." Yeah. If you're joining post Series C, like you're not gonna be getting stock that's gonna make you independently wealthy as soon as they go mm-hmm. public. Well it's... and also it's it's always a red flag to us if that's
0: the reason why a candidate that yeah. wants it to begin with mm-hmm. because it's like all of our clients, every <laughs> single one, wants somebody who's truly passionate and mm-hmm. curious and wants to lean into yeah. the vision and is a real believer and that the money is secondary.
1: Yeah. But I think having good expectations, you know, what what are you looking for? Are you wanting a strong work-life balance? Are you wanting the best, biggest cash offer? Are you interested in taking the risk um, for something that you believe in, right? Mm-hmm. And then if you're interested in taking the risk, just having real expectations, you know, the... The thing with startups is that it's really about the risk-to-reward ratio. So if there's high risk, you get a lot of stock because if it's successful, there's a higher reward potential, right? Right. And so as the company de-risks itself through you know, building a product, gaining market share, more rounds of funding, making more revenue, all of these things, uh, they bring down the risk. And so also the reward comes down a little bit with that. Yeah, the dilution Mm -hmm. starts to happen. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So what do you think, you know, having done
0: this, I've been doing it 25 years, you've been 13, like we've, we're kind of like been there, done that in this industry, and yet things are constantly changing. Mm -hmm. How do you think recruiting has changed? And where, what direction do you think it's, going in. Um, I'm a big yeah. fan of um, being relationship driven. Mm-hmm. And yet technology is also a necessary
1: tool. I think when I started recruiting, it was really about finding candidates. And the internet has done a lot, like all these different like LinkedIn, different search tools have done a lot to solve for that problem. Um you know, it's my opinion that right now a recruiter's job is more about successfully engaging candidates and successfully closing them, um, which kind of includes creating a great experience for them in, in between those stages. But I want to see how how good of a job does a recruiter do in terms of getting these highly sought-after candidates to actually respond to them. So I look at response rate. And then On, link, like, LinkedIn? Uh, however they're messaging them. Are um, there other tools that you would recommend for... That was
0: listening to the
1: podcast uh, yeah I mean I I like LinkedIn as a research tool I don't like to use it for outreach personal preference but mm-hmm. I feel like like another in-mail exactly well and it's you can turn off notifications for that stuff yeah. and so it's so easy to silence that um, I think it's better to kind of meet candidates in a different way I think I, if you're going to do outreach over the internet, I find that if you can find their direct contact information, mm-hmm. a real email from a real person is a little bit harder to ignore than an email. You can still ignore it, but it's harder to ignore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oftentimes, if it's a really hard to fill role, I will have an executive or an investor or an advisor reach out to like if, if they're going to garner more interest than you know an unknown recruiter at a company that you haven't heard of. Right. right. Um, and when the companies are small, it's really easy to do that. It's really easy to have the executives or or someone closely linked to the success of the company be willing to jump in and and send some in mails or emails on your behalf. Right. Um, so it's it's kind of leveraging the people who are going to get the notice. But as a recruiter, it's also how well are you able to engage these people? Do you have a good reputation in the industry? Can you? Paint a compelling picture for a candidate so they're willing to talk to you. Can you manage a pipeline of relationships well? Mm -hmm. Um, Like you said before, it really is a relationship business because most people don't respond to cold emails, you know?
0: Yeah, they don't. And so what are some tools that you recommend Mm -hmm. for those types of process-oriented things?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of tracking, like when I started at Convoy, we had, like, the biggest spreadsheet in the world, and we used it to track. And so we, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's A tacky, lot of people use Excel. Yeah, and, and it works to a point, right, until you're trying to hire at scale. Uh, and so, like, I would say the minimum you need to have a way to track it, and whether that's a spreadsheet and then putting calendar reminders up, but... You, like A like little you, wonky. A little wonky, but it works. You know, yeah. you, it, it's it's stage appropriate, if yes. you will. Um, so, you know, I, I think just outlining what the process will be ahead of time and mm-hmm. creating a way to track that and putting the right reminders in place so you don't drop the ball. I mean, founders are busy. You've got a million things. And so put something there that you can't ignore that's reminding you reach out to this candidate, follow up, do this prep work, um, pull your team together. And, and get everyone aligned on the profile that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not aligned on the profile, pull in candidates that align with a couple different profiles and talk to them to see what you can learn. You can do that um, kind of uh, concurrently and decide which profile best aligns with what you need as you're talking mm-hmm. to the candidates as opposed to pivoting a search three times.
0: What are the ratios that you think companies should be looking at for like an engineering role as far as submittals to interviews,
1: interviews to offers, offers to hire that you goal set for? It depends a little bit on the company. Um, if it's the first time they've hired for a role and they've never hired for it, you're going to see probably some some ratios all over the place. But if they've hired, let's say, three or four, maybe five people and they know what success looks like for a role, you know, I, I would think that I, I typically think of knocking about half the candidates out at each stage. Um, let's say you submit 10 candidates to me. Mm-hmm. Probably should pick a different number, but a bigger number. But let you submit 10 candidates to me you know when i'm dialing in the profile in the first place i might talk to all 10 mm-hmm. to help me figure out what i need way for way down to 5 exactly but then if i if i've done that already i might say you know these these 6 look good i'll talk to these 6 and then you do some kind of screen and let's say you know you knock out about 3 like i think realistically as you as you kind of dial it in you know kind of fa- like factoring down by half every stage mm-hmm. is is realistic um you know i th- i think a well-oiled machine that's that's a, a well-oiled machine. I've seen a lot of companies that tend to do like one in four move on, and so you're you get down to about twenty five percent pass yeah. through at each stage. So I'm talking submittals to
0: actual starts. Submittals and so to starts. We go for one yeah. to ten for engineering. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's our goal. That's really good. Um, yeah, well, yeah. But we have companies that we work with that are like one to forty, and then mm-hmm. we have to we have to like stop and say that's yeah. kind of regroup. Yeah, we want one in ten, and that means that the um, job intake was done well. Mm-hmm. It means that our clients were realistic, not looking for the, whatever we call it, the purple unicorn, the purple squirrel, that the recruiter talk. Um, it means that comp was, it means everything was kind of lined up and mm-hmm. that the process was smooth and we didn't lose the candidates along the way. All the different reasons why jobs kind of turned south. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on our admin searches it's and marketing, it's lower. Yeah. Um, and even accounting and finance, it's lower. But engineering, it just takes a lot because... A lot of our clients are doing whiteboarding, and do you
1: guys do you believe in coding
0: challenges? I, um,
1: I think or kind of doing coding is a good thing. I think that the the whiteboard interview is not a realistic situation that engineers typically code in. Yeah. Um. But I've I've had companies where that's the only thing that we've done, and then I've had somewhere we would do a combination of that and laptop. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had companies where the candidate got the choice. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I, I think you you do want to have the situation where you're actually getting to see them write code. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't think a whiteboard is realistic. Yeah. Well, it sounds like just being flexible, being open, mm-hmm.
0: trying, iterating, moving yep. through different options to see what's working. Because mm-hmm. in this market, you really have to try it at all. And do we give an offer so that they can walk into another interview with, you know, an offer in hand? Or do you wait? Do you say, hey, let's just pull this back completely if they're interviewing at like a Facebook, Google, mm-hmm. Amazon? What are your thoughts on that? Is there a strategy?
1: Yeah, there's absolutely a strategy. Um, you know, if... if if the candidate's saying they're not willing to, like, they're not so bought into your opportunity that they're willing to cancel their other interviews, putting an offer out there, whether they intend to do this or not, it just gives them the opportunity to shop it around. And especially if you're a small startup, you already know the other companies are going to beat your compensation, right? So, yeah. like, you don't, it doesn't make sense to do that. Um, both at Redfin and at Convoy, we would basically tell our candidates, hey, like, it's our intention to make you an offer. We want you to be here, but we also want to wait until you're actually at a point that you're ready to make a decision. Uh, and so during that time, we would take the time to we would set up coffees or have them come to happy hour with the keep team, them warm. keep them warm. We'd get them to talk to, you know, one of the executive leaders or, you know, at Convoy, we'd have them talk to some of our board members even Um so, you know, it was it was this thing where we're like, we'll keep them warm, we'll show them we're engaged. We make it very clear what our intention is, but we're also like, it doesn't make sense for us to put an offer in front of you until you're ready to actually consider it. Yeah. Well, especially because that messes with your metrics. <laughs> yeah. Then you're like, oh, we've had all these turndowns when
0: they're not actual, they they could have been mm-hmm. avoided. And then, yeah. hmm Yeah. We've talked a lot about kind of our, both of our passions around diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. and women. And it's obviously, especially today, a very hot topic. Um at what stage in your career did you realize this was important? And, at, and at, what can companies do to implement some sort of program mm-hmm. kind of early on so that they're not saying, hey, I've got 30 employees, I've got two women, how do I get the best women?
1: Yeah. Um, I think it's easier to start earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that was a thing that was really important to me at Convoy. Um, you know, we – we had a blank slate. It's easier to change the ratios when you're changing the ratio of a group of ten than when you're changing the ratio of a group of a hundred. For sure. Um, and if you kind of start the flywheel in that direction, you think about employee referrals. Your employees are going to refer people who are in their network, their friends, and oftentimes our friends look very similar to us. And so if you have, you know, a, a very homogeneous. Company, you're going to continue to get more of the same, Uh, and so I think it's critical to start as early as possible, trying to to move the lever in that direction. Um, You know, oftentimes managers or executives will say, "Well, so you're saying we have to like slow down the process to get women on board or ethnic minorities on board?" And uh, that's hard for a startup, and I get that. I I mean, I've been in the startups as well. I think, uh, you know, at Convoy, what we did was we kind of had two concurrent strategies. We had we're going to find the best engineers. Uh, and that's through them applying. That's through us uh, seeking them out. But our, our all of our outbound sourcing for a specific amount of time, I think, is about six months. We targeted ethnic and gender minorities to invite them into our process. Uh, so we're like, we're at least going to do our, what we can to invite them into mm-hmm. the process. And how did it work? Uh, it worked well. Um, we had uh, from I'm trying to remember what, what year it was. I think. January twenty seventeen, uh, the first part of that year, we hired five female engineers. Oh, that's great! Um, in about six months time, and there was a lot of kind of iterate, iterating we did on that. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, we outlined here's how these people are self identifying. We didn't. I didn't want my recruiters making any guesses. Mm. Uh, so here's how they're self identifying, and we're going to reach out to those people who are self identifying and, and invite them into our process.
0: Um, I love that, and I think that a lot of companies make the mistake of putting a lot of effort into um, sourcing, you know, a diverse population of candidates, but that not thinking, okay, then once they get here,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how do we make it an inclusive environment, and how do we make this a place that they want to work?
1: At Convoy, I, I was heavily you kind involved. Of found in yourself it. in HR. Yeah, I yeah. did. Um, that tends to happen when you're the only yeah. person there. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it is a part of recruiting. But it is, it's is—it's just a part of the people function, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a couple – like, I have a couple of thoughts on this. And part of the challenges of building a um, an inclusive environment is creating this psychological safety and creating this environment where people feel like they can be their true selves. And uh, what you have typically seen or what I've typically observed in startups is – they're moving really quickly. They're building a product, and things come along, and they're like, "I don't really like that," but it's not to the point of being an employee relations issue, so I'm not going to deal. I'm not going to address it. Right. Well, especially because everything's coming at them, so like we have exactly. to rank order things, we have to prioritize yeah, here. Exactly. Uh, but what that does is essentially it. You know, the, the lack of addressing it essentially condones it, and so you're condoning all this antecedent behavior that leads up to what then causes an employee relations issue, mm-hmm. or what then causes someone to feel unwelcome at work or mm-hmm. like like they're not a part of their team. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's the challenge is you've you've essentially condoned all this. And I mean, I've been in a couple of times I've been in conversations where it's like, well, but so-and-so did this and we didn't punish them for that. So now this person did this thing that was only like that a little rights, bit. Yeah, two,
0: two wrongs don't make a right. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, and they're like, this is only a little bit worse, but it does kind of cross a line. But we didn't. <laughs> so now where do we draw that line? You're like, well, we should have drawn it back then and just said, hey, like, this does not create an inclusive culture. We yeah. don't, you know, this is not a way that we want our employees to behave. But they did. And so that's where you kind of get into this catch 22. And that's, I mean, no company, no no founder wakes up and it's like, I really want to build a company that's going to get slaughtered by PR about yeah. having a bad culture, you know. But it it's these things, these little things that happen over time that ultimately you're allowing things to happen that continue to, to grow bigger and snowball until you're there. Um, yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, So how do you keep yourself informed? Well, I surround myself with people that I deem to be smarter than me. Um, You're one of them. Thank you. (laughs) Um, But I do. I I try to spend time with people who I feel um, are well-connected, have uh, their fingers on the pulse of what's happening in our industry, uh, in the U.S. in general, uh, in our market in Seattle. Um, I do try to kind of pick up skills through different courses. There's certain things that I have kind of slated where I like when it makes sense, this is something that I want to actually go get certified in or, or learn this so that I can offer that to my company or my team or, you know, whatever it is. So I did go. I went to uh, to do a certification for Corn Ferry, their leadership architect and their interview architect framework, which is – I totally nerded out about that. It was great. Um, what, are there any insights
0: you can share that are – I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, but I'm curious.
1: I think the, the biggest thing is that, you know, most people feel like – Interviewing is at best, uh, you know, kind of like guesswork, and at worst a crapshoot. Uh, and there are things that you can do to actually make it an objective process. There are things that take the guesswork out. And I, you know, a lot of companies, bigger companies, put those into place when they realize how much it costs them to make a bad hire. But usually, they're somewhat labor intensive to put in place. And so, again, startups don't always go that route. Um, but I mean, this the certification that I that I got, they base their practices out of 80 years of research on psychology and performance at work. And they have baselines for people across the world in 52 different countries uh, in entry-level roles, all the way up to executive roles, um, to understand kind of what are the behaviors that people typically display, and then what are the behaviors that are differentiators in these roles that make someone even mm-hmm. more successful. So they're, you're asking behavioral questions in asking, interviews? Yeah, you're asking behavioral questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and are there also, any
0: go-to interview questions that you love?
1: Uh, I mean, I think a lot of the behavioral questions are the same. One of the things I really appreciated about this uh, this training uh, and something that I plan to take to my clients um, is just how to dissect a candidate's answer to actually to decide what what you're gleaning from, or like, what nuggets do you pull away from a candidate's answer? And so, um, most people will ask, "Give me give me an example of a time when you failed at a project." And the candidate will cherry pick their best example of it, their right? Yeah. I failed because I care too much. I'm yeah. perfection. Yeah. You know. uh, yeah. But um, you know, so one one of the the tactics you can do is actually ask from multiple examples, because you can start to see a trend. If they mm-hmm. only have one example, that might not be a useful cue for you to make a decision based off of. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, like, looking at, you know, the first the first thing you want to see is, like, have they done it? Have they done what I'm asking about? Mm-hmm. Uh, two, have they, like, seen it or do they recognize it in someone else when someone else is doing it? So they do they know what it looks like when it's happening well outside of just themselves? Uh, and three, like, did they... Like, have they been able to teach somebody else that? And for have they, like, did they learn from it? Right? Did they learn and grow from something? So, kind of that reflective piece, um, and that's really what you're looking for. And so, whether you're asking about a time they failed on a project, or um, whether you're asking about a time that they disagreed with their boss and how they handled it, you want to see the the trends of behavior over time and mm-hmm. how they. See patterns exactly, yeah, uh, and so you 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 want to look at kind of their the patterns in thought, the patterns in action, uh, the patterns in um, kind of you know, speech and interacting with people. Mm-hmm. You know, like how do they, how do they relate to people, uh, and then also their patterns in reflection. Did they take something from that and apply it to the next time they ran into that scenario? Mm-hmm. So now
0: that you've been in the world doing some consulting, mm-hmm. and I know we've been on some meetings together, and we're we're kind of seeing some patterns of what startups are needing. As far as advice um, and process, uh, what are you seeing as, as, like, what's needed the most?
1: Um, I think, I mean, I think one of the things I'm seeing the most is a lot of companies just don't know what good in recruiting looks like, aside from are we making hires or are we not making hires. Mm-hmm. Um and and that's that's a tough indicator because if you get to the point where you realize we're not making hires, the problem has persisted for a while, right? Like, if it's gotten to the point where, like, we haven't made a hire in three months, that's bad, mm-hmm. um, you know, as opposed to having metrics in place where you could diagnose that earlier in the process,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you're at the point where it's a pain point and you're trying to figure it out. So I think that's one of the trends I've seen is just that, like, they don't know – what their what their pipeline should look like, and right. they don't know and they how don't know to... where
0: what they're going for, so they don't mm-hmm. even know how to measure themselves. And so, what what are you telling them that they should be going for? Like, how do they give themselves an A?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a couple things that I that I tend to point them towards. Uh, you know, a lot of companies will look mostly at volume or like quantitative metrics, uh, and those are good. So you'll look at you know, candidates at different stages in the pipeline and also, like, pass-through rates. So how are candidates passing through the process and where are they falling out? Um, I also like to look at those pipeline metrics to understand, you know, why are they falling out and do we think that's a good place for them to fall out? So we were talking earlier about, you know, it takes 40 candidates to get to one offer. And what that tells me is that they're not screening rigorously enough earlier in the process, right? Like, they should screen those candidates out, earlier mm-hmm. um so they're not having to interview that many candidates right mm-hmm. and you know I'm working with a client now who it takes roughly 20 candidates uh for full interview loops for them to get to a higher um and that's a lot I mean think about if there's seven engineers on an interview loop and they each spend an hour plus time to debrief and you know how much engineers are paid how much time and money are you wasting well, on candidates less, less that...
0: coding more time suck
1: exactly yeah and so that's where for me it's like you know, if you have a really well-calibrated profile and you know the three things that they have to have checked off from a screen and the three things they need to have checked off from a technical screen and then the five things that they need to have strong marks in for a full interview loop, you have that really well-calibrated, you can start to look at your pipeline metrics and say, let's let's narrow the funnel here. Let's be mm-hmm. more, more restrictive or more stringent at this point so that we're not having as many false positives at this point, right? So I like to look at… I like that. Yeah, it gives you control over your
0: pipeline. And so when someone's like... like, Are they giving equal weight? Sorry to interrupt you, but are they mm. giving equal weight to must-haves and nice-to-haves? Sometimes. Because that drives me crazy. Where it's like, yeah, so sorry, go on. Yeah,
1: no, I mean, and that's it, like... And sometimes they'll have a nice-to-have that is actually, for them, a must-have, but they don't tell you that. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the joy of working with... uh, with smart people, if smart people have elaborate dysfunctions. It takes mm-hmm. you a while to uncover them. But uh, but yeah, I mean, so, they'll, you know, t- to me, I'm like, I, I don't want to waste a lot of time with false positives unless I'm trying to determine what the profile needs to be. Mm-hmm. And so it gives you control over your pipeline. You can say, let's be more stringent here. Let's let's or let's be more liberal. Maybe we are knocking out too many people at this stage and we may – let's see if we were a little bit more liberal if we have more people make it through the process than right. we expected. Right. We're looking at
0: similar metrics at fuel. And technology can help with that. Yeah. Um, but we're constantly trying to get our team smarter, faster, better, more efficient. Yeah. And we're looking at these metrics also. So what types of tools are you suggesting, like lever, greenhouse?
1: Yeah. Like what do you recommend? I mean, I, I think I do suggest – Systems like Lever and Greenhouse, I think, you, you, the kind of the short reason for that, uh, I mean, most ATSs were built with the premise of being a workflow tool, uh, and in in that they, the reporting, the the data, and the candidate experience after that, like they were afterthoughts. They weren't. These systems weren't designed around creating a good experience for candidates and giving you data on how you're. Doing, they were just designed to process a workflow. Mm-hmm. Um, so enter Green and, and there's more, but the, the two These main are applicant ones are tracking yeah, systems. yeah, Greenhouse yeah. and Lever applicant tracking systems that were built around giving you insight into your pipeline and creating a great candidate experience. Mm-hmm. And um because of that they put in tools like like Lever has a tool called Nurture that's like drip marketing campaigns that lets you keep in touch with keep candidates. in touch with candidates on a more regular basis and it yeah. and it automates it in a way for you. And it
0: integrates with DocuSign also so mm-hmm. that your mm-hmm. offer letters can go out and it can all be integrated yep. and all the paperwork so that it's yep. efficient. mm
1: mm-hmm. I yeah. love that. Yeah. So it's 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 not just looking at a, a workflow, but it's optimizing the recruiter's time and where they're spending their energy. It's creating a great candidate experience and it's providing a lot of data on how that's happening. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those those are kind of the the new age systems that have been gaining popularity over the last couple mm-hmm. of years, but they really were designed with different things in mind than, you know, back in the day when teleo was created or, mm-hmm. or Jobbite or things like that. Every is yeah. completely
0: different. But if you don't have the fundamentals down, mm-hmm. then it can really be frustrating because you're losing yeah. talent and you're not sure why. And mm-hmm. that's when um, it's helpful to partner with someone like you or par- partner with us and figure out how to um, take best practices yeah. and, and really implement them.
1: Well, and I mean, really, like that should be... One of the most strategic parts of the process, because how much time do you waste if you get a candidate to the one yard line and can't get them across, right? It happens all the time in this market. Yeah. And I mean, like at Convoy um, and even at Redfin towards the end of my time there, we would actually have the recruiters put together a closing strategy um, when they put together the offer for approval. They would highlight concerns or areas that we wanted to touch on for the candidate or areas we wanted to sell on that, like aligned with what they were looking for and who would be the best person to do I that, love that and actually built out a plan. So we're like, these are the touch points we're going to have over this week. Here's when we're presenting the offer. Mm-hmm. The offer deadline is, you know, th- that's on Monday. The offer deadline's on Friday. And here's the, here's the sell conversations that are having during that mm-hmm. time. Um,
0: is this all done on like Google Docs or do you have a Slack channel together? Like how do you keep all this organized mm-hmm. when like the CEO is traveling and the hiring mm-hmm. manager is not in that day and yeah. time is of the essence?
1: I mean, early on, we we basically did it over email, um, and then with uh, when we at Convoy, when we put in place Lever, we put some of it in our system, and so it would be it would be tied to the candidate's profile. Mm-hmm. So then everyone who was involved could go in and look at it. But we would actually just schedule time, like if if. You know, Dan Lewis, the CEO of Convoy, was going to call and talk to a candidate. We would just put it on his calendar
0: and put um, the notes in there. Like and put hey, the notes in
1: there. Yeah, this is a
0: cell interviewer. Mm-hmm. hey, this is what this other candidate has on the. M- yep, you're going to need to come in hard on this mm-hmm. and push
1: on that. So we'd put it. We That's would tie great. the notes into the employment meeting, so he just have to open it up. The notes are there. The resume is attached. We'd put the link to their their profile and lever, so he could then go look and see the rest of the feedback. We'd also give like high and low points of the interview, just so, you know, he kind of knew how, you know, if we had any concerns or any thoughts, you know, where they were. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And so we'd literally just pull it like, you know, kind of one-stop shop. He could go in there, take two minutes to read through the invite and see everything he needed, do his cell call. And then he would, you know, we often liked our, uh, you know the the people who are involved in this to put their notes in in Lever but you know if they were busy we just say just send us an email and let us know how yes. it went and We need that we need the bottom yep. line here because we're going to lose the candidate Exactly yeah and so well, it's, you did a
0: great job how many people did you hire while you were there
1: Uh over the 2 years I was there we went from I was a 23rd hire and we were at just under 300 when I left so wow. 2 years uh almost Good for growth. you. Yeah, it was a lot.
0: Good for you. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure if we covered everything. I have so many questions for you, and you really um, – you say you learn from me, I learn from you, and we will continue to learn from each other. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.